0: Time there, and uh, they're going back, uh, and we want to bless them and help them in their going, so on May 15th, this is all us, they didn't ask for this, on May, 5th, uh, May 15th, on June 15th, uh, we're going to have a, take up a special offering for them in the service, and I just wanted you to know about that, they have cards out front, if you want to grab their card, uh, if you want more information about what they're doing, you can either ask me, or I can put you directly in touch with them, um, for what it's worth, I would, I'll, Fully endorse them. Our family is supporting them. Um, I really believe in them and in what they're doing. So, on June 15th, we'll take up a special offering on Sunday, and I just wanted y'all to be ready for that. Uh, Second thing, Kim, where are you? Can you stand up? Kim Kramer um, started work here this week. She's working part time to help in all areas. So, any questions you have from now on about anything, you contact Kim. I've got her home number. I will give that to you also. I'm not kidding. So uh, we're glad that she's here again. If y'all had uh, she's going to be doing a lot. I would say she's doing a little of everything, but she's going to be doing a lot of everything. So uh, just look for her and all of those things. You've heard people say you are what you eat. You maybe have seen some of these pictures before. I'm going to see if I can do this without. Oh, I forgot my list. See if I can do this without making uh, a sound system feedback. This is, um, I'm not going to try to pronounce any of these names. The guy from, uh, went around, these pictures are on Time's website. I'm not sure if he works for Time Magazine or not, but he went around and he uh, took pictures. He told people to gather what they eat in a typical week and put it all right there. And then they took pictures. This is a family in, Japan, they spend $317 a week on food. So that's Japan. Let's see the next one. This one is Italy. 260 bucks. Look at all that bread. Looks Italian. What's next? This is in Chad. That's a dollar and 23 cents. That looks like just rice and beans for the most part. Next is Kuwait. I don't recognize a lot of that. Um, $221 United States. Here we go. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about right there. Uh, $341. Their monthly or their weekly bills are a little higher than ours, but you can see what's that. Let's see the next one. This is Mexico. $189. Looks like they like Coke. Um, I guess uh, not to be stereotypical, maybe the water you can't drink the water or something, so you drink Coke. China. This is where Jason and Felicia are going. Let's see what they're eating. $155. Poland. Uh, that's $151 worth of food. Looks like mostly fresh stuff that I can see. Egypt, uh, there you go, $68. What's next? Ecuador, mostly fresh things, $31. The United States, again, this is a family in California, $159. That looks familiar to us. Mongolia, um, 40 bucks a week that they spend, lots of eggs. Great Britain, $253. Bhutan, five bucks for Bhutan, that's a lot of food for five dollars it looks like, and Germany, that guy's happy to be there, you see the kid in the picture, he's thrilled, he should be, because his parents spend five hundred dollars a week on his food, can you believe that, it's all the beer down there at the bottom, (laughs) I don't know if it's all the beer down there at the bottom, so you are what you eat, this is John 6, this is a long section I'm going to read, so It'll be on the screen. Y'all just do your best to pay attention. When they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You were looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, "'The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent.'" So they asked him, "'What miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat.'" Jesus said to them, "'I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world.'" "'Sir,' they said, "'From now on, give us this bread.'" Jesus declared, "'I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry.'" And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to, to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall not that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. At this the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I'm the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the man in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate man and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now that gets a little weird there towards the end with all of the eating my flesh and drinking my blood. I'm not sure who Jesus' PR people were, but they probably had some work trying to spin that. Um, what I've done, this is a little chart that I came up with, because all of that stuff, when Jesus talks a long time, it's, it's confusing. It's, when he talks short, it's a lot easier. But when he talks long, it can get confusing for me at least. So I came up with a little chart to help you see what to me are the two main points of that whole section. And we're just going to move through this real quick. Jesus does all this talk about bread and eating and all of that. All he's trying to say is, Jesus, I'm the bread of life, and if you eat me, then you'll live forever. It's it's John 3.16, just in other words. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not die but have eternal life. I will say this as a side note. If you can remember John 3.16, it will help you understand tons of the Bible. So John 3.16, if you kind of apply that to this, there are really only three things Jesus is talking about. He's talking about himself, he's talking about faith, and he's talking about salvation. He just uses, y'all can't even see that, I see you all squinting. Um, he just uses these different, all this different terminology for, to talk about himself. He says, I'm the one sent by God, I'm the bread of God, I'm the bread of life, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven, I'm living bread that came down from heaven. All that's just Jesus. When he's talking about faith, he says, believe. Come to me and believe in me, believes, eat, eat this bread, eats my flesh and drinks my blood, eats my flesh and drinks my blood, he says that twice for effect, feeds on me. All of that, those are just other words for faith. And then salvation, he talks, he uses, gives life to the world, never go hungry, never be thirsty, have eternal life, or be raised up at the last day, has everlasting life, not dying, living forever, has eternal life, remains in me and I in him, and live. All of that's just different ways of saying the same thing. All of this, what he's doing, He's just trying to communicate to these guys that He's the key to eternal life. If you want eternal life, you have to believe in Him. Again, that's John 3.16. That's what He's trying to get them to see. It's just difficult because they've got something else in their head. And so He has to use this progressively more shocking uh, vocabulary to kind of shake them up a little bit to get them to hear what He's trying to say. Let me give you a bit of the background. The day before this you know, eating my flesh, drinking my blood thing. Jesus had fed 5,000 people. Many of you maybe remember that story. Jesus is teaching people on a mountainside. They say there's 5,000 men. So maybe there's 10 or 12,000 folks. If you count women and children and they get hungry and the disciples say, these guys are hungry. We need to cut them loose. And he says, no, you feed them. And they say, we don't have any food. What do you have? We have five loaves of bread and two fish. And he says, well, that'll work. And so, He thanks God for the food and gives it to the disciples. And as they go out and pass it out, it just keeps multiplying. And it says, all of these people, however many there were, twelve 12,000, had enough to eat. And then they had 12 basketfuls left over. Each disciple had a kind of a goodie bag to take home to remember what had happened. So that happens. This Jesus did a lot of stuff. Y'all know this. He raised people from the dead. He healed blind people. He cast demons out of people. He did a lot of miraculous things, but this feeding of the 5,000, the reaction of the crowd is completely different than it is with anything else he ever did. You can see, if you want to go back and read the story, in John six fourteen. this is what happens after uh, he does this. After the people saw the miraculous sign, that's the feeding, that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet, and that's a capital P, who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The reaction of the people is different. They see this guy who can feed them, and they say, we've got to make this guy king. And Jesus picks up on that, and he knows that's not the plan, so he pulls back. He sends his disciples across to the other side of the lake in a boat, and then he just you know, walks on water across to the other side. And the people wake up the next day, and they say, where's Jesus? They realize he's on the other side, so they go find him. And that's when R, that long thing I read, that's when that picks up. That's right when they find Jesus, they say, How long have you been here? Basically saying, Where did you go? You left us. And Jesus replies by saying, You didn't look for me because you saw a miraculous sign. You looked for me because I fed you. He's basically saying, You're looking for breakfast. That's the reason you guys came looking for me, is you're hungry again. And I get that. They were hungry again. If you, In general, the people who um, kind of flocked to Jesus, who he ministered to and taught were kind of what we would call kind of... They were were regular people. They were common folks, whatever you want to call them. They weren't necessarily the upper crust of society. These guys didn't have savings accounts. They didn't have credit cards. There was no home equity that they could tap into when times were hard. They had what they had. If there's a bad year, crop-wise, they don't eat. They're living hand-to-mouth. The money you get for today, you need for food tonight. It was very... Again, hand-to-mouth existence. These guys didn't have a lot of reserves. And if you meet somebody who can take one little boy's lunch and feed 12,000 people, you're probably thinking, problem solved. He'll take care of us. Who wouldn't want that guy to be king? We've got three guys, two guys and a woman, who are vying for to be president. If one of them could take the money in your wallet, or the money in their wallet, and take care of all of our national problems, they're probably going to be elected. If, if you gave them $5 and they turn your 5 into a $1,000, they are probably going to get your vote. And that's what Jesus did. He took this little boy's crumbs and fed all these people. He's going to get their vote to be king. Why wouldn't you want a guy? I get the draw. But that's what the people were thinking. And what Jesus is trying to do is get them off of that track of just thinking about their stomachs and to really start thinking about their hearts. So he uses this really gruesome, cannibalistic type imagery to try to get them to see. There was nothing more offensive to a Jew than blood. God, that was Old Testament. You stay away from blood. Very clear in Leviticus. You don't do anything. You don't eat animals that still have the blood in it. You definitely none of the drinking people's blood. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's trying to kind of wake them up because they weren't seeing what he was saying. John 6, 14 says, when they saw the miraculous sign, a sign always points to a reality greater than itself. If you're driving on the interstate and you see a sign that says, Cracker Barrel, four miles on the left, that's a sign. The reality it points to is the restaurant, Cracker Barrel, which will be four miles ahead on the left. You get that. The sign is the billboard. The reality is the restaurant. God often, when he works in our midst, we can see those things as signs. But a lot of times, we get confused about which way the signs are pointing. I think there's kind of three things that we do when we see a sign. One is we just don't see it. We're playing with the radio. We're talking to the person next to us, and we drive right by the billboard. We don't even realize that there is a sign. And I'm hungry, and I'm grouchy because there's a Cracker Barrel every 15 miles. When you're not hungry, when you are hungry, you can't find one, and you have to pull into one of those places that has gas and sub sandwiches at the same place, which I don't quite understand. Whatever. So that's what you get. It's not that there wasn't a sign, I just didn't see it. I wasn't paying attention. And a lot of times the same thing happens with the Lord. We just don't see it. Jesus spends a lot of time talking to people, even very religious people, who knew the Old Testament very well. Good people, not good people. And he says, you guys, you're not seeing what I'm doing. You're not hearing what I'm saying. You guys need to ask for God to give you eyes that see and ears that hear. And a heart that will understand what's going on. We just miss it. We kind of live life in the natural world because that's what we live in. That's what I see with my eyes and our five senses are tuned in to this natural world as they should be. But there's another world, there's another reality. And I'm not being, you know, spooky here. If you believe in God, then there is another reality beyond the natural world. And what Jesus is saying is you guys need to learn how to tune in To that world you got to get the right frequency on your radio and sometimes we don't and so we miss what god is doing in our midst we think well god is dead or god doesn't care or god's ignoring me or we think all of these things and all it is is we haven't our head was down and we passed the sign there's a cracker barrel up there i just didn't know it because i didn't see the billboard so first thing i would say in terms of signs is pay attention and that's nothing, you know, you don't have to kill yourself on that. It's just asking the Lord. You can just, whenever it is that you talk to God, if you just say, give me eyes to see what you're doing today. That's it. He wants to communicate with us. It's not hide and seek where he's hiding and we've got to try to find him. It's not even Marco Polo where he's yelling his name and we're, trying, we're thrashing around. He's giving us a little, it's not that. He wants to communicate to us. He wants us to know what he's doing. He wants us to know what direction he wants us to go in. We just need to tune in to what he's saying. So I would say the first thing, don't miss the signs because they're out there. You just need to ask for him. To, the second thing we do, I think, and this is maybe a bigger one, is we misunderstand, we misunderstand what the signs are pointing to. We see the sign, we just read it wrong. For instance, we have these three women stand up. God does work in men's lives too, apparently just not this week. We only have women who were sharing what God did in their life, what if that was different? If Amy stood up and said, you know, they prayed for my neck and it didn't get better. Would that be, we could take that a lot of different ways. Is that a sign that God doesn't want to heal Amy's neck? Is that a sign for us to persevere in prayer? Is that a sign that she needs to go to the chiropractor? There's just a lot of different ways we can take what God does. If you don't have any other information to give you context, you're basically just guessing. You see something and you're just guessing. It would be like if I took that Cracker Barrel billboard that says, Cracker Barrel, four miles ahead on left. I took it out of where it is on the interstate and I just put it in your front yard. You don't know what to do with that. Four miles which way? Left from where? There's no context. And that's sometimes what happens when God works. We don't have any context for what He's doing and so we misunderstand the signs. And what I would say to you with that, the first thing is you need to ask him that you would see the signs. And the second thing is you need to learn this. You need to get in the word. It provide, This provides the context for what God is doing. So if we prayed for Amy and if her neck didn't get better, we would say from this, well, God says he's a healer. So it doesn't mean he doesn't want to heal. God does say that we need to persist in prayer. That's Luke 18, to pray and keep on praying. Okay, so maybe that's the sign. We would, and the reason we can come up with that is because we know this. We know some of what God is saying. And so I would encourage you, it's not a matter of memorizing isolated Bible verses. It's a matter of getting to know God through all of what he says about himself through this whole book. And again, I would encourage you just John 3.16. You've already, already got that memorized. That will help you understand the Bible in general. There are parts of it that are really confusing. But if you can kind of remember that one verse, it will help you understand the parts that are really confusing. And there are other things you can do if you get parts that are confusing or whatever. Sometimes I just skip them, but at some point you do have to go back. You'll get it. You need some context so you can understand what the signs are. And the only way to get context is the information, and the information is in here. The third one, sometimes we confuse the sign with reality. That would be like I'm starving, I see the sign, Cracker Barrel, four miles ahead on left, and I just jerk the car off the interstate and go park under the billboard and expect them expect it to feed me. I'm not going to be happy. There's no food there. It's just a sign. It's pointing me to the restaurant. I have to get to the restaurant to eat. And sometimes in Christian circles, we do that with God's activity. We set up camp at the signs and don't realize that the signs are pointing to something bigger, to something greater. Sometimes, maybe you've heard, depending on the circles you run in, you may or may not have heard people talk about getting your blessing. You hear that sometimes. You need to get your blessing from the Lord, get your healing from the Lord, whatever it is. Those things are wonderful. God works in our life and it's good. And yes, amen to all of those things. But all of those things are signs that point to a greater reality. If you set up camp under the get my blessing from God, you're missing what that experience is supposed to point to it's supposed to point to a god who is active in the world and cares about you it's not about that particular event if we decide that oh well we had a a neck healed and a back healed so this is going to be the we're not stonebridge anymore we're the church of the healed spine and that's what we're going to be and we're going to set up camp under healed spines what that that's that's not the deal that's just a sign that points to a greater reality. That God's in our midst and He knows our pain and He can heal our bodies and all of those things. Those things are wonderful, but they're just a sign that point to something else. That's the problem that this crowd fell into. They saw this sign. They ate this sign that Jesus performed. But that's where they set up camp. This guy can feed my stomach. So do that again, Jesus. Remember Moses? He did it every day for 40 years when our forefathers were in the desert. They had this manna, this stuff that fell from heaven. They went outside and there was stuff on the ground and that's what they ate. 40 years of that. Jesus corrected them and said, it wasn't Moses, it was God. But yeah, I get the point. That's not what I'm doing here. That's not what that sign... That sign was not about your stomachs. It was not about physically feeding you. It was about the fact that I, Jesus, am the bread with a capital B, of life with a capital L. And the guys missed it. This can get kind of tricky. The, the These crowds saw Jesus as the meter of their needs. And he is. Jesus meets our needs. Matthew 6, Jesus says very plainly, God knows what you need. And he talks about food. He talks about clothes, water. He knows what we need. The needs that we have. And Jesus says God will meet those needs. So that's a reality. God desires to meet. Our needs. But the thing that the Jews missed and sometimes we missed is that's not God's primary role or objective. He is not primarily the meter of needs. He does meet our needs and He does it because He loves us and He can and He wants to and all of those things. But that's not His primary objective or role. God does not exist to meet my needs. Some of you are parents, all of you have had parents. A parent's job, part of a parent's job is to meet the needs of their kid. I've got to put food on the table and make sure they're warm and all that stuff. That is not my primary objective as a dad. I don't wake up in the morning saying, man, I've got to feed the kids. I do, but that's not my primary role or objective. My primary role as a dad, for me, is to position my kids to live the life that God wants them to live. And yeah, I've got to meet their needs for them to get there. But that's not my primary role or objective. I'm not the meter of their needs. And the same thing is true of God. He does meet our needs. But that's not his primary role or objective. And that's what these guys didn't get. You can be our king so you can feed us. No. He's going to be your king because he's the king. And he will feed you. But that's not his primary role or objective. Do you hear the difference there? That can be tricky because I don't want you to hear me saying God's not going to meet your need. Of course he is. And he wants to and he longs to and all of those things. The catch for us is realizing that is not his primary objective that's not what he's all about he doesn't wake up in the morning saying okay i got to start meeting needs in people's lives that's not the deal for him we've said before what his primary objective is is to make us as much like jesus as he can before we die that's what he's trying to do that's his overarching objective in all of our lives whether you're a christian or not that's what he wants for you the first step in that is becoming a christian but even if you're not a christian that's what he wants for you he wants you to become as much like jesus as possible Before you die. That's, you can capitalize that for his title. That is his primary objective. As a part of that, he will meet your needs. He will. You might have to eat hot dogs instead of steak, but he will meet your needs. And that's that's okay. For us, I think the deal is just making sure that we keep those two things separate. What he does for us and what his primary objective are, because at some point, it could be that for a, some period of time, what you see as a need in your life that needs to be met will come into conflict with what he is desiring to do as his overall objective. He's trying to make you more like Jesus. I want him to make me stop hurting. That's my need. And what he might do is not stop me from hurting, physically or whatever, because this pain will help accomplish his overarching objective. And so rather than me getting bent out of shape and saying God doesn't love me and God doesn't care and God can't do this and God can't do that and blah, 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 what I need to do is say what is this sign pointing to? What is this seeming lack of activity in my life? What is that pointing to? And if I know what God's overarching purpose is, I might be able to get it. But if I think his overarching purpose is to make my life better, I'm going to miss it. And then I'm going to get disgruntled and all that and none of that's going to help me. At all. So anyway, that was all kind of a um, tangent. Back to Don- John 6. It's interesting to me. In John 4, Jesus has a conversation with a woman and he says that he will provide living water. They're at a well and they have this whole thing about water. It's almost as confusing as John 6 because he starts talking about all these different kinds of water and all of this stuff. But it's the same thing. Jesus is saying, I will give you water and you'll never be thirsty again. And what he's saying to these this crowd is, I will give you food and you'll never be thirsty. Hungry again. Jesus, obviously, smartest guy who ever lived. He knows that we need food and we need water to live. And it's interesting to me that so close to each other, he says, I'm the source of both of those things. I know what you need to live, and I'm the source of that. And he uses these images, these metaphors of water and bread. Everybody gets that. We know we need to eat. We're not going to go long without food. I think you can go, like, what, three weeks? is what I heard on Man vs. Wild the other day. Three days without food and three weeks without, or three days without water and three weeks without food. Something like that. At some point, not eating, you're gonna, you're gonna die. Our bodies can't produce energy apart from food. Jesus gets that, and so he says, I'm it. Bread obviously was a staple in the diet of these guys, and so when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he's basically saying, you need me to live. I'm the source with a capital S. You're talking about bread with a little b, I'm talking about bread with a big B. And we need to, for us this morning, I think that's a place for us maybe to sit for a second and really think about what is the source for your life. And don't just say Jesus because you're in church. do not do you any good if it's not true. Really think about that. What is the source for your life? You can ask yourself this question. When you get in a jam or when you need something, what's the first thing you do? Who, what's the first person or thing that you look to? That will tell you what your source is. And that's not something to beat you up. It's just a, it's a mirror so you can see. There's no reason for any of us to hide behind pretenses. When you get in a bind, where's the first place you go? If it's the Lord, well, then he's probably your source. If it's not, I'm not saying the first thing you do is pray. I'm saying is the first, is your, the first direction you look, Jesus. When I'm hungry, I eat. That's what I do. I don't go jog when I'm hungry. I don't watch TV when I'm hungry. I don't read a book I eat when I'm hungry. That's where I'm looking when I'm hungry. When you get in a bind, where do you look? Do you tend to look to the Lord, or do you tend to look other places? Some people maybe look to themselves. Some people look to their friends. Whatever. And I would just say, answer that question, and that will tell you if Jesus is the bread with a capital B for you or not. One of the things Jesus is trying to do in this is get us to look, again, kind of beyond the temporal, the temporary, to the eternal. But I don't want you to think that Jesus doesn't have any effect on our life now. This might be um, too graphic. But I was thinking about the relationship between our life here, the temporary or the temporal, and our ultimate life eternally with the Lord. Everyone's going to live forever. That's what the Bible teaches. We're all created to live forever. It's just a matter of where. We're going to live. Are we going to live with God or apart from God? And we talked about that last week, that if God's the source of all good things to live apart from him, well, that means you're living apart from all good things, and well, that's another way of saying hell. So that's that, and that's our choice, and we get to decide do we want to live with God or apart from him. But I was thinking about this life here, and how do those two things relate? One of the things I think sometimes we do as Christians is we just think of Jesus as kind of insurance for the next life. And, you know, I'm going to die and stand before some gates, and they're going to say, you know in the cartoons, you know, why should I let you in? And I'm gonna pull out my Jesus card and say, That's why I've got this insurance card that's gonna let me live whatever and my life here is totally disconnected from the next life. But I was thinking about um maybe this is a better picture. And again I hope this doesn't if you're a visual thinker, I hope this isn't gross. You know, I was thinking about uh pregnancy. Not that pregnancy is gross, but when you think about the what's going on in the womb of a woman while a baby is being gestating, or whatever you say, is going on there. That's our life here. Is that the right word, nurse? Thank you. So that's what's going on. While our life here, it's kind of like we're in this womb, and God is forming us and shaping us, and we're gestating. <laughs> or something. That's what God is doing. And then death, this, this isn't New Age, death actually can kind of be like birth. When we die, we are, we are entering into this next reality. Just like when a baby's born, they are leaving one reality, this, this world where this is all they've known, into a greater reality. This world that we all know. And that's the same thing, I think, with our growth as people. Our life here, you're, we're in the womb. We're in utero, and God is trying to form us and shape us. We've been talking about that for two weeks, or two months. God's trying to shape us into the image of Jesus. And He's doing all the stuff that he can do and asking us to cooperate with him to make us as much like Jesus as possible while we're in utero because once we die it's kind of like the concrete is set or the clay is set it's a done deal there's no more changing that goes on we're going to when we die we're entering into this greater reality of eternal life for good or for bad for us the same thing you know when a baby baby's born and enters into this greater life you get that so to say Jesus is the source, it's not just about Jesus getting you into heaven. It's about Jesus doing stuff now in this temporal world that we live in to prepare you for this greater reality that we're all heading towards. Christian or not, you're all, we're all heading, we're all going to die and you can see death as the beginning of this or the doorway or whatever you want to call it to this greater reality that we're all being prepared for. So when I say, is Jesus the bread of life for you with a capital B and a capital L, don't just hear me saying, well, am I going to heaven? That's not it. Jesus is talking to these guys about their life here and now. Just like you've got to eat food today to have energy for today, you need to eat from Jesus today for life for today. It will prepare you for life in the future, but it's also for Today, the eternal is not completely disconnected from life here. So what's your source? And the second question is how do you fuel up? We're all born kind of knowing how to eat or whatever those things suckle. We're all born knowing how to do that stuff. But how do we fuel up when it comes to the Lord? He says, eat my flesh, eat my flesh, drink my blood. What are you talking about? We're going to take communion today. Is that what he's talking about? No. What is he saying. He's he's saying believe in Him. He kind of starts the whole thing with this is the work that you have to do. Believe in me. That's where we start. There's this idea of, we've talked before about what belief means in the Bible. Belief doesn't mean think. Belief means trust. To believe in Jesus doesn't mean to think certain things about Jesus. It means to trust your life with Him in very concrete, very tangible ways. We've used this illustration before like with this chair if i say i believe this chair is going to hold me up that means i think this chair is going to hold me up when jesus says believe in me he says do this do you believe the chair is going to hold you up well if i'm standing yes i'm acting on what i know to be true and that's when he's when he's saying eat my flesh and drink my blood that's what he's talking about Actively trusting Him with very tangible, very practical aspects of your life. Ultimately, all of your life. I think there are a lot of different ways we can kind of get around that. Just like we feel physical hunger, I think everybody feels spiritual hunger. And it feels like restlessness or dissatisfaction. Some people call it a lack of peace. It's kind of that where your foot starts tapping all the time and you know something needs to change. You're not sure what. We get that inside. And you just, that's spiritual hunger. And we do several things with that. Sometimes we ignore it. We just go take a job. We, we ignore it. We don't acknowledge the fact that we're feeling restless, that we're dissatisfied. We just put our head down and keep going. For whatever reason, that's what we do. That doesn't really, that make the hunger go away. It just suppresses it. That's just a temporary solution. Ultimately, it's going to come back, and it's going to probably be even stronger. I would say, in general, we ignore it, if, we don't, if it's an area that feels unpleasant and we don't want to have to address. That's just the easiest thing to do. I have a friend, he says, you've got to look at the brutal facts. At some point, you've got to look at the brutal facts, what's going on in your life. If you're feeling restless in some area, there's a reason, so look at it. Pretend, you know, ignoring it's not going to make it better. You just look at it and see. One thing we do, the second thing I think we try to do a lot of times, at some point when we do acknowledge that we're hungry, is we try to feed ourselves. We just, I'm hungry, and so I'm going to go get something to eat. I'm feeling this restlessness so something's got to change. So I just start throwing darts at the dartboard to figure out what needs to change. I'm going to change my job. I'm going to move. I'm going to get married. I'm going to get divorced. I'm going to have a kid. I'm going to, whatever it is, I'm going to change something. I'm going to, that's what we do when we start feeling, when we try to feed ourselves. If we're not, if our source is not Jesus, if he's not the bread of life for us, That's what we do. I feel hungry and so I gotta feed my, that's what I do. I I need to eat. And so I start looking for ways to feed myself. And again, I think that's whether you're a Christian or not. I think that's a common temptation. Last thing I think we can do, and this I think is particularly true of Christians, is we try to earn our own breakfast. We just, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna work for it. Which sounds nice and good and noble and all of that, but actually it, it's not any of those things. It totally undermines our relationship with the Lord. If you want to use this eat analogy, this is the deal. God gives us food. There's a table spread out, and he's saying, come and eat. Because I want you to come and eat. And because I love you. You don't earn the invitation to the meal, and you don't have to earn your supper. Some of you, us, we were raised where we had to earn our keep. We had to earn our supper so to speak, and we transfer our relationship that relationship to our relationship with God. We've got to earn things. Well, I want God to do this in my life, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up every morning at 6 and pray, or I'm going to start reading my Bible, or I'm going to love my mom, or I'm going to witness to 10 people a week. Whatever it is that I'm going to do, I'm doing trying to get God to pay me back. Then what he gives me is not grace, it's what I earned. It's my wages. It's not a gift. Your employer's not giving you money. You earned it. And that's, it, it totally changes our relationship with the Lord. It's no longer a father-child thing. Those of you who have little kids, they can't do anything to earn. I got a three-year-old. He can't earn his supper. He's cute, but that's about as far as it goes. He can't do anything. He's not contributing to my household at all. And that's how it is with us in the Lord. We don't, we don't add anything to Him. We can't contribute in a way that then would obligate Him give back to us most of us it's not consciously that we think about that it's down here somewhere where we're striving for things expecting God to then pay us back and the way you'll know that happens is when he doesn't and you get angry if there's something that you've been wanting God to do and you're angry because he's not it could be because you think you've deserved it you think you've earned it God look what I've done for you and you haven't held up your end of the bargain you haven't paid me back you haven't paid me what you owe me. That's poison, is all that is. And we don't need to psychologize why we do that and why we don't. It doesn't matter. The bottom line is it's not good. And God will not relate to us like that. Like that. That's a transactional relationship. This is what I bring to the table. This is what God brings to the table. He doesn't work that way. God says, this is what I bring to the table. Why don't you receive it? And you say yes or no. And I say yes or no. So it's a completely different understanding of from what these guys had. Jesus will make you the king. That's what we'll do. Then you can feed us. That's what you can do back. No. He's the king because he's the king. And he'll feed you because he loves you. But those two things aren't tied together necessarily. You saying Jesus, you're the king, doesn't obligate him to feed you. They're, they're two separate issues. You get that. So this is my question for you today, and we're done. What's your source? And just think about what do you do when you're in a bind? What's the first place you look? And again, I'm not saying it's the first thing you do, pray. I'm saying it's the first place you look, the Lord. It could be the Lord, but you, there's someone you talk to or something like that. Where, where do you go when you're in a bind? We'll tell you the answer to that. The second is how do you fuel up? If Jesus is your source and you're saying that, well, what are you doing to eat this bread? It's not a one-time deal. You don't eat at the beginning of your life, and that carries you through. You've got to eat regularly. Same thing spiritually. You've got to continue to eat. It's a regular thing. You're going to use up what you get, and so you've got to get more. So what are you doing to fuel up? How are you Are you standing in the chair, so to speak? Got it? We're going to take communion, and um, this is the way we do it here. You guys can all come back, Bo, you guys, and whoever is serving communion. It's kind of tight up here, but we'll have two folks over here and two folks over here, and somebody will be holding a loaf of bread and somebody will have a cup. And um, all you do is you rip off a piece of bread and then you dip it in the cup and then you eat it. Break, dip, eat. We've had people before do it in a different order and it doesn't work out nearly as well. So we've had break, eat. Don't do that. So... That's how we're going to have it. Someone's going to say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. That's what they're going to say when you come up. We've been talking about feeding on Jesus, and this is kind of a real tangible expression of that. We don't earn this. This communion symbolizes Jesus' death and resurrection and all of the benefits that come to us because of that. There's nothing that any of us did that... Jesus is paying us back by dying on the cross. And there's nothing any of us can do to earn the benefits that this thing that we're about to do represent. This is a great kind of walking out, a great example of what we were talking about today. You're going to receive from the Lord. And what we're going to trust happens, and I don't get this, is we're going to trust that as you physically eat this bread dipped in juice, that God is going to feed your heart, not your stomach that he's going to feed your heart. The Bible kind of talks about that a little bit, and we're going to trust that that's what is happening. And I would just encourage you as you do that, if there was something um, James shared earlier, and you know, if there's something that, that you need from the Lord, if there's, you need physical bread in some sense, those things are good. And I would encourage you as you come and take this, just to ask the Lord to do that in your life. If there's something in your life that you need from the Lord, you can't earn it just like you're receiving this as a gift, but he does long to do those things. Just believe him and ask him to work in whatever area of your life that is. We'll also have some folks um, after we all take communion who'll be more than willing to pray with anybody here about anything that's going on in their life. So y'all can stand. And we don't have, there's not a formal um, order. You can just come as you want in terms of communion. Y'all can stand and I'll pray. God, I pray you take kind of the messiness of um, what I shared and that you would hone in on the things that are important in the hearts of all those who are here. God, even communion uh, is a sign that points to a greater reality. And the sign of the broken bread is your broken body. And the sign of this juice is your blood that was shed for all of us. And we don't want to miss that. We don't want to get caught up in... We, we just don't want to miss that. And so, Lord, I pray as we take communion this morning that for all of us, it would point us to the greatest reality in the history of reality. Your death and resurrection, Jesus. God, I pray if there are any, of, any here uh, who have never followed that sign, I pray today they would. God, I pray that this would be the day where they would say, I'm going to start feeding on the bread of life. And that they would give their lives to you, fully and unreservedly. Thank you, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, And I also want to pray if there are any class.
1: So, um, I thank you. The church, thank you. Everybody, you help. Thanks you. Okay. Huh. Wasn't Scott Ponticus good last week? Golly, I'm so glad he came because, I, like I said, it's about as big a mystery to me as it is to anybody else. And I think that he really um, uh, just helped us so much. And I hope that you left having a sense of what the contribution is of the Orthodox Church to the body of Christ. That there are things and there are history and there are traditions there that we need to hear. Um, for those of us who are Protestants and find ourselves pretty devoid of any attention to tradition, um, there, I think there is something there for us to hear. And it's, what's interesting to me is when I run into Protestants who have converted to the Orthodox because they are drawn by that. And isn't it a great and glorious thing how diverse the body of Christ is? I mean, if you were to take the Orthodox last week, and the Anabaptists, we're going to come to in a few weeks. You're not going to get folks that seem to be further apart, but are in actuality all part of the unified, single body of Christ. Because if you look at the affirmations that the Orthodox make, they too can stand and say the Apostles' Creed without crossing their fingers, right? Or the Nicene Creed. It is, there is far more that binds us together than divides us. So. Today we're going to come to Luther and the Lutherans. And we're going to go back a couple weeks. I began to get into this just a little bit a couple of weeks ago. And I introduced you to Pope Leo X. He's one of, well, there were nine Leos before him. And one of those Leos was really big and important. And this Leo, well, I don't think he did quite such a good job. And uh, Pope Leo X is the one who was the presiding Pope at the time that the spark of the Reformation, the fire was, was really lit um, in the work of Martin Luther. And so we're going to look at the work of Martin Luther today and that's going to take us into Lutheran beliefs and a, and a look at the Lutheran Church now. But I really do believe that if you go back and you understand how it began, you will have, understand most of what it is that makes the Lutheran Church distinctive today. Same thing is true in the Methodist Church. When you come to the Methodist, you wonder why we have so many what we affectionately call Catholic Baptist couples? (laughs) You're out there nodding, we're one of those. Because of our roots, our tradition, how the Church of England started. It's just always created that kind of place. And so the Lutheran um, church today is completely still grounded in the theology and the perspective of Martin Luther. and. I want to introduce you to a fellow named Johannes Tetzel. Now, what was happening in the early part of the 16th century is that St. Peter's Basilica was being finished. And the Catholic Church at this time was, the church in Rome, was increasingly dependent upon the sale of indulgences. What was called, what, the, what an indulgence is, in the purer sense, is that it is a payment that you make to the church or a contribution you make that doesn't have to be money it might be some work of service performed which earn you freedom which release you from the acts of penance that catholics do to make up for their sins and some of you are catholic and i hope i'm in the ballpark on this and you are the, the indulgences are drawing upon the treasury of merit that the church and the saints have built up over the centuries and the extra merit of Christ and stuff, sort of like from this bank account into your bank account. And <clears throat> that, not surprisingly, in my view, degenerated into G. Pay us money, good things will happen to you. Pay us money and it wipes out the sins you've committed. Pay us money and you can even spring your loved ones from purgatory or whatever. And by the time of the early 16th century and the need for money to finish St. Peter's, the Pope sent out fundraisers. And one of these fundraisers is Johannes Tetzel, who came to Germany and was going around basically saying, you know, buy these indulgences and well you get your freedom from sin and the rest of it and he even had a jingle a jingle which went like this as soon as the coin in the coffer rings the soul from purgatory springs now I don't think you have to be a Protestant to recognize that there's a problem with this okay (laughs) but it 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 was like the flame that ignited the Reformation It was this flame that caused Martin Luther to pound his 95 theses into the doors of Wittenberg. But let's not race ahead to that. Let me just talk about Martin Luther for a second. He was born in 1483. In 1505, which would make him about 22, he was struck by lightning kind of sort or at least we're close to where he was. And... You know, he prayed to God that he would survive this, and in his moment of foxhole Christianity, which a lot of us have been through, he said, Lord, Lord, if you save me, I'll become a monk. And as opposed to those of us who make these bargains with God and don't follow through, he actually followed through, and he did become a monk. And I I suspect in personality he was much like the Apostle Paul in that, Martin Luther was a man of great zeal, great determination, great passion, and when he undertook something, he was going to be the very best at it. He was not shy about saying, his quote went something like that, he said if monkery, if being a monk, can get you into heaven i'm the first one in the door he says if i hadn't given some of that up i would have killed myself all the prayers all the vigil all the script reading all these works i did everything i did i nearly killed myself he would fast for day after day after day after day in the cold german winters he would sleep without blankets and so forth in a sense punishing himself because he was a man who had this huge vision of god's majesty and this huge vision of his own sinfulness. And he couldn't bring those two together, and he couldn't see how he could ever make himself acceptable to God. And what he heard from the church, what he heard heard in his monkery, was a message about making yourself acceptable to God. And one night, as he is reading through the book of Romans, it's as if all the lights came on and he had a flash, he read and and heard Paul's words about our being justified by faith, which comes from the book of Romans, and he heard in that crystal clear the statement that there's nothing that he could do to make himself right with God, because that's what the word justification in that way is about. It's about being made righteous.